from the beginning, we care about them just because of these circumstances that they've been thrown into. They've had to be taken away from their home. There's attack on their country. So there's kind of these big picture reasons to just care about children in this type of situation. But then for these four kids themselves, we talk about how old the book is. And yet I feel like these could have been four children from today, the way that they are interacting with one another. Hey there, welcome back to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writer career, and also write the best manuscripts they can in order to hook that dream agent of theirs. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor who is passionate about helping you learn how to write the best manuscript, alleviate any stress or anxiety about the literary agent research process so that you can find your best match in this publishing world, and provide exercises and writing tips that provide enthusiasm and motivation for writing and finishing your manuscript. I'm really excited to give you another first chapter deep dive analysis. Today, I'm joined by a wonderful book coach from the Author Accelerator crew. Her name is Sarah Gentry, and she is a writer and Author Accelerator certified book coach. She is a PhD in Applied and Interdisciplinary Mathematics, and now she uses her analytical skills to help writers solve their story problems so that they can write books they love. Sarah's website is solutionsforwriters.com, and you can find her on Twitter and Instagram at write with W-I-T-H, Sarah, S-A-R-A. Sarah does specialize in kidlet. And she has selected one of my all-time childhood favorites for today's analysis. It is the second book in C.S. Lewis's series, The Chronicles of Narnia, and also his most successful and well-known of the seven books. I'm talking about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which to this day has sold over 100 million copies and remains steadfast on the shelves of bookstores, libraries, and of course, our own bookshelves, if you love fantasy. It's probably there. With that being said, I'm really excited to bring you Sarah today. She has wonderful insights on how The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe works as a masterwork, but isn't necessarily the best book to use for today's middle grade fantasy market, as well as a fun analysis that we do together. Let's get into it. Hey, Sarah, thanks for joining me. I'm really excited to have you here. Sarah is another wonderful book coach who I found through Author Accelerator, but I actually read an article from Sarah on DOIMFA, which also made me very excited to partner and do this episode together because I've done columns at DOIMFA. So here we are, small world. I'm so happy to have you here and to meet you officially. Thank you, Abigail. I am so happy to be here and delighted to make this connection. And I think we're going to have a great conversation. Yeah, I think so too. So Sarah has selected The Lion, the Witch, and the wardrobe for the first chapter deep dive analysis. And I was really excited that you picked Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. This book literally smells like mothballs. I've had this one for so long and read it countless times. Pages are ripped. The cover is ripped. It's very much a book that has been made real. It's been, I think that it has been a close place in my heart for a long time up there with Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings, all my fantasy loves, that a juggernaut really in, in these magical worlds and game changers in fantasy. And it's a middle grade book. So 
that's another area of focus. But it's interesting because you selected this for a specific reason. And you said that it would be wise to talk about how this book, while a great example of a masterwork, might not be something that we would model in today's middle grade. And I don't specialize in middle grade. I'm more of a young adult if I do something with fantasy. So I'd love to hear your insights on that and learn more about that. Yeah, so it's amazing how many writers, editors, librarians, teachers, how many people in the book-loving world will specifically reference The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe as very formative to their reading experience when they were young. And it's a widely read book. It's a well-beloved book. And yet it is an example of how the market shifts as Mm -hmm. time goes on and how important it is for writers to be savvy about what's happening in the market for which they are writing. So while The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a great book, it probably would not fly in today's market. And so when we get writers that come to us who are modeling perhaps off of a book that is 80 years old now, (laughs) 70 years old now, it, it becomes a little bit of a gap that we have to address. What do you think is different about Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe or any of the Chronicle of Narnia books compared to something that would be middle grade fantasy in today's market? Sure. The obvious one that just really sticks out is how short the book is. The book is only about 36,000 words. And middle grade is actually steering a bit a bit longer now just in general, even if you're not writing in the fantasy genre. But nowadays, a middle grade fantasy could be running twice that length. I know that you have discussed Harry Potter, but the first Harry Potter book pushes 80,000 words. <laughs> That's more than twice the length of this Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's one area for sure. The, because of that, the pacing was very, very tight. There's perhaps less description happening in this fantasy. I feel like C.S. Lewis probably expects the reader to fill in the gaps on their own. and That could probably open up a whole other discussion about what's better for forming children's minds or what's not, but it's just something to observe. The style of the writing, the omniscient voice of the Narnia series, while you will find books in today's market that have an omniscient voice, it's not popular and it's perhaps difficult to execute well in today's world. But, you know, nowadays everything's very close third person or Even first person, we definitely see a lot more of that as well. Those are the ones that stick out right away as kind of being a a little warning flag. I love that you brought that up because when I was analyzing this, and I know we're going to get into the scene analysis later in the episode, I struggled to call a scene. Like, where am I going to call it? And I flirted. Do I need all of chapter one and all of chapter two? Can I do it in just chapter one? I ended up settling at page 13. So I did chapter one plus a little bit of chapter two, but I think it speaks to the pacing. And what's interesting about this is that I was engaged the whole time and I did feel like I could fill in the gaps and have fun with that. I've also Mm -hmm. read this book countless times since I was a young girl where my mom was reading it to me before I could read. So I think it's one of those things that I understand how to fill the gaps because it's something close to me. But something just so interesting because the pacing, you have to keep up, right? It really felt like it's the chapters roll into each other. It almost felt like this could be like one giant splurge of a story, at least in these beginning sections. So, yeah, I hear you on that. 
I'm curious, what do you think is a good example of something in today's market for middle grade fantasy? Is there something that usually you refer clients to? I really think it depends. For good or for bad, the, the kid lit market is being more sliced and diced every day. So writing for, even though the middle grade market will cover the conventional age would say eight to 12, some will expand that from eight to 14 mm -hmm. uh, with an upper middle grade range. I mean, writing for a 12-year-old is much different than writing for an eight-year-old. They're facing very, yeah. very different things. So I think it really depends on the age of your target reader for what kind of fantasy you might want to pay attention to. Because some fantasy novels, even for children, are pushing that 80,000 mark. But there are still some fantasies that are more in that thirty to 40,000 word range. And I also think it depends what kind of fantasy you want it to be. So Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe being a portal fantasy, you have now a whole new canon of books that are mm -hmm. being based on world mythologies that perhaps readers in America might not be familiar with that folklore that it's coming from. And so sometimes a lot more world building has to be done in that way so that they can have a better understanding of the world that they're they're entering in. It might not be as easy to grasp as pushing through a wardrobe into a snowy lens, for instance. So I really do think it depends. But one recent fantasy that I just loved was A Wish in the Dark by Christina Soontornvat. And it's loosely based on the Les Miserables story by oh, Victor Hugo, but adapted for a younger audience. But I also love it because it's taking place in this Asian fantasy world. And so there's a lot of interesting elements with light and magic that perhaps would not be as familiar to a European or American audience. So I really do just think, though, there's so many great fantasy books out there right now that writers are probably best served by knowing what kind of story they want to write. And then there will be no shortage of wonderful books for them to sort of learn from while they're absolutely. doing it. Yeah, absolutely. What was the name of that title of that book? That yeah, it's called A Wish in the Dark. By Wish Christina Soontornvat. Well, that will be added to my list because I <laughs> love Les Miserables and fantasy. So <laughs> the combination of the two sounds great. I also love what you're saying there about fantasy and the sense of there's going to be even more and more. I think that's really important for writers to keep note of is that something like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, especially if it's near or dear to our hearts, would always still be a good example of a masterwork to study that we can still pull big, important things that are touching us as readers that we want to incorporate into our own writing. But it might not be the comparable title, and it shouldn't actually ever be a comparable title because it's far too old and also ubiquitous in its own way. And for listeners out there, if you haven't figured it out, Sarah knows what she's talking about. She is a book coach who specializes in Kidlet. Before we get into the analysis, let the writers out there know what you do, why you do it, and why you specifically we're drawn to this one. You kind of mentioned it before, but I guess how you analyzed it and what you're excited to talk about today. I'm starting to develop this reputation for being a nerdy book coach. I come from a nerdy background. I have a math background. And so I do like to study things. I like to tear them apart and figure out why they work. And I think that that's valuable to do for anything. Even if it's a book that maybe hasn't been very well written, there's value in, in that as well. But especially it's good to study things that have stuck around. Like you mentioned, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has remained steadfast on the children's library shelves. And there's got to be a reason for that surpasses even these differences that we're talking about between today's market. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'll put this all in the show notes too, but if writers are interested in working with you, where can they find you? Sure. My website is solutionsforwriters.com. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at Write With Sarah. No H on that. And also go follow everything that she's doing because she has wonderful resources out there. Like I mentioned, she has written, uh, she wrote a column on DOIMFA that I really enjoyed about, uh, the topic was about reading with your children. So I loved that article and I know that you've mentioned that more will be coming out. Let's start today. We're going to get into the deep dive first chapter analysis for The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. And as usual in these episodes, what we do is we tackle the big picture first with the seven key first chapter questions from Paula Munet's book, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. And then we zero in on the scene level. And then we use the story grid five commandments. And we use that to analyze a well-structured scene. As I mentioned before, my scene is a little overlapped. I go chapter one and a little over into chapter two. And I know Sarah analyzed it a little differently. So I'm excited to discuss and compare our analysis. As I've always mentioned before, it's not important to me that we come up with the exact same answers. It's more important that we can have an educated discussion about why we saw what we saw and ultimately get to the same conclusion that the scene did work, that it moved the story forward and developed the characters in the process. My summary, because I did do for the first chapter and a little into chapter two, mine ended on page 13. And the first lines I used are the first of the book. And they say, once there were four children. And the last lines that I have, again, are on the page 13. It's the very bottom of it, if you have the text copy. And it says, had known one another all their lives. So that is where I'm beginning and ending with the summary. And what we're focusing closely on, the majority of that is chapter one, which is what our analysis will be. So this is what happens in that chunk of story. Four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, are sent to live with a professor during the air raids in London. They're excited to be in the professor's home because it looks like they'll be able to do anything And during this time, as they talk, they decide to explore. Lucy, who is the youngest of the four children, is a little bit nervous about everything, but she is also excited to explore with her siblings. The next day after they have that discussion, it's raining. They think that they'll have to put their exploring on hold, but Peter exclaims that he's going to go exploring inside the house anyway, and they all decide to get on board with that and explore the house. At one point, they come to a room that doesn't seem like it has anything in it, but there is a large wardrobe. And while the other three children, the older ones, Peter, Susan, and Edmund, decide to move on, Lucy hangs back and wants to explore the wardrobe. She opens it up, and it looks like it's seemingly an ordinary wardrobe. There are fur coats in it. She likes the fur coats. She enters the wardrobe and is conscious to leave the door open. She goes further and further into the wardrobe and discovers that there is no back but the wardrobe starts to turn into a snowy forest. There's snow on the ground. She's feeling branches. At one point, she debates whether or not she should keep going. There's a light that seems to be shining ahead, but she concludes that because she's left the wardrobe open, that it's going to be okay, and she continues to move forward. She enters a mysterious land, magical land called Narnia, and finds a lamppost where a fawn named Mr. Tumnus comes and meets her. He's surprised to see her. He calls her a daughter, Eve, and wants to clarify if she is in in fact human, which, of course, to Lucy is nonsense. Of course, she is human. And they have a slight discussion about geography of where she came from and all of that. And then Mr. Tumnus invites her back for tea. 
She hesitates for a second because she thinks that she'd be getting back not to worry her siblings, but ultimately decides to follow Mr. Tumnus to his home for tea and they walk arm in arm as if they had been friends forever. So that was where I concluded it. Sarah, now you, I guess we should talk about this quickly first because you said that when you analyzed it, I ended up expanding and you almost thought about splitting it into two scenes. So I'd love to hear I, I about that. I did. I don't know if it's, I also write and work with picture books. And so I don't know this, if it's that micro level of thinking that just always has me thinking about the very smallest unit. But I was almost tempted to dice it in half where the kids are like searching in the house as almost being its own scene. And then Lucy going off on her own as being another. I think they would work well together, though, as well. So it's kind of like you said, you can look at them as one big chunk and they will still at the end accomplish the same thing. Or you can dice them into smaller pieces. I think that's smart that you're observing what you're doing and why you're doing it and having a reason behind that. I think it's, that's what I always say with any writer that I'm working with. You don't have to agree with what I'm saying to an analysis degree. This is a subjective analysis. However, I think it's more important to ask, why do you see it that way, right? Understanding why someone has a conclusion is far more important than coming up with the quote unquote exact right answer, because is there a right answer? I think that that's really valuable for you to understand why you go there. For me, I expanded because one thing that I'm always looking for, and this is just where my understanding of the craft comes from, using the story grid tools in this way, this one specific way of analyzing, I look at beats and I look at scenes and beats I always see as a change in tactic of characters going forward in the scene and their goal changes, but the value shift of the scene doesn't necessarily change. And then a scene changes in value. So something changes where it's significant enough that it feels like its own scenes. Regardless of all of that, I struggled because I was trying to debate if I was going to do all of chapter two, if I was going to do none of chapter two. I think that I was spinning a bit really spinning because I was sitting there and I was trying to figure out like so much is happening. And part of that is with the pace and in the, the middle grade, I think, story. And then, of course, as you mentioned before, this example specifically, the pace is even tighter. But it just kept going. And it was one of those things where it's like, I have to call it somewhere. I have to call big decisions somewhere. So if you're out there, writers, and you're hearing this and you're analyzing this and you're reading the text and you're spinning a bit, know that you're not alone. <laughs> I was also spinning, and I'm glad to hear that Sarah also was debating about how to structure this. So there we go. Um, well, I think one thing that's interesting about this opening chapter is that you start with all four children, and they're on equal footing. And then as the chapter progresses, now Lucy's on her own, but then in two, that it was like the children all acting as one. And then mm -hmm. one stepping away on her own. So, yeah, it's all very interesting, though. Absolutely. Okay. With that, an awareness of how we're going to go tackling this deep dive analysis, let's start with the seven key first chapter questions. Again, these are from Pauline Mooney's book, The Writer's Guide to Beginnings. The first question focuses on genre. And the question is, what kind of story is it? And when I look at genre, Sarah, I like to look at there's commercial genre and there's content genre. So a commercial genre in the sense of how do we market this story and then content genre in what are the big values that we're actually going to focus on in the story? What is the story type? I think as far as market is concerned, we would classify it as a middle grade fantasy. 
I suppose if you really want to get any more specific, you could say it's a portal fantasy, but it's probably worth mentioning too that middle grade, sometimes people will call middle grade its own genre, but it's not. Middle grade is your audience specification. Middle grade has the same genres, except for baby romance, <laughs> but a middle grade has the same genres that an adult audience would have. It's for a middle grade audience. Same would be true in YA. So we would not want to call it a middle We would call it middle grade fantasy. I love that you specified that. Do you, so when you say that middle grade isn't in its own genre, would you call middle grade the age group a category or do you think category is its own term? You could call it the, the market category, the audience category. There's probably a lot of ways you could express it, but it's not, it, it's more indicative of who you're writing for as opposed to what kind of story it is. And then for this age group, because you said that sometimes the middle grade audience can be 8 to 14, sometimes it's more 8 to 12. For Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, who do you think is the ideal target reader? What age? I think 8 to 12 is pretty spot on. The irony is that I think this story probably appeals more to the slightly younger end, maybe 8 to 10-year-olds, but it is difficult to read. The sentence structure, the omniscient narrator, it has a very high reading level. It's almost a sixth grade reading level. Mm -hmm. So that's what kind of makes it a little bit fuzzy. But perhaps if an adult was reading it aloud or you were listening to an audiobook that might help with some of the readability issues, I'd be inclined to say it's more in that true middle grade range, maybe slightly younger. I love that you pointed that out. I see my mom read this to me when I before I could read. And one thing that I really love, the very first thing in this book, I'm flipping pages, so you can probably hear that. The very first thing in this book doesn't get right into the story. It's C.S. Lewis's acknowledgement, and it's written to his goddaughter, to Lucy Barfield. And at the very end of it, he says, by the time this book is probably published, she won't be interested in fairy tales anymore. But I loved this. He says, but someday you will be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. And basically, I loved that he said that because that's the magic of this. I think the reading level is, it's a reading level for a much younger audience, but the diction could be more sophisticated in times. However, the story holds our hearts forever. And maybe that's one of the big reasons why it's still withstands the test of time on children's bookshelves and libraries. So that was really cool. I thought that that was kind of fun that he even anticipated that already. For the content genre, when we're looking at story type, I see this as dominantly on the external scale, the things that are happening in the story. It's an action story. It feels like an action adventure to me. We're dealing with life or death stakes. And that comes full force in the climactic moment when it's the battle for Narnia between the White Witch and her troops and Aslan and his troops. Really, Peter starts that battle and then Aslan comes into it. And then I also think this is an extremely strong example of a coming-of-age novel. So the worldview story dealing with the black and white views of children and as coming into themselves, especially for Edmund, which I actually think, you know, he's kind of seen out of the four children as the child that is the least favorite, I guess you would say, in the beginning in the series as a whole, he becomes like the second most faithful to Aslan out of the four. He's right up there with Lucy. So I'm always really fascinated. I think I just love antiheroes, but I'm always really fascinated by that as well. So you agree. I see you nodding with that. Yes, that. yes absolutely. I think you've summed that up really well. 
All right. So then we'll move on to question two, which deals with plot. And the question is, what is the story really about? This story is about four children. It's an opportunity for them to become heroes, mm-hmm. right? They get to step into a heroic role to save Narnia. Big picture kind of view. The story is also a biblical allegory. So I don't know if we care to discuss that, but, you know, so there there's some story connections there as mm-hmm. well. And it's ultimately going to be a good triumphing over evil. Yes, I think good and evil is definitely in there. The Bible allegory speaks most prevalently, I feel like, in this book out of the series. This one, we have direct referrals to the stone table and Aslan being sacrificed and then rising again. So definitely Christian beliefs in that sense. And then these children and coming into their chance to be a hero. So I see it, you know, it's always interesting to think about why them? Because they do feel like they're chosen ones. Like Harry Potter's a chosen one as well. Harry Potter, Voldemort chooses him. And in Narnia, the prophesized sons of Adam and sons of Eve. It's interesting to ask ourselves, why them? And part of it being, I think, in their place in the world that they live in versus the world that exists and how they exist in that world. There, The war is going on. The air raids are going on. So we have children who are caught in great turmoil and no understanding of how it's going to end. So I think there's a lot of fear with that. They're sent away from their parents to this stranger's house and they like the professor, but ultimately they're definitely in a place of chaos in their life. They only have each other. You can see Edmund struggling with Susan, trying to mother him and things like that. So it is interesting that it's this core group of four children who have an opportunity to become heroes, but also find themselves in a place of taking back and I think fighting for others in a world where in their world, they're not in that position. They aren't in a place to fight in the war. I wholeheartedly agree because that's actually a common thread in children's books just in general. I think as adults, we often forget what it's like to be 10 years old and really not have much control over your life. I mean, really, you don't. You you go to school when you're told. You you do what your parents tell you. If something happens with your parents, you get sent around somewhere else, kind of like these children are. It's an unsettling place for anybody to be, but especially for children who don't really have a lot of autonomy over their lives. And I think that's another reason why this book is so well-loved, because it's these children who are in a predicament of sorts and really have no control over what's going on. And yet they get to be the heroes. And who doesn't want to be a hero, right? That's right. Even an anti-hero. So there we go. Question number three deals with point of view. And the question is, who is telling the story? An omniscient narrator. I have to wonder if it's C.S. Lewis himself. Yes, I would say it is. (laughs) Especially because of that introduction to his goddaughter. The story almost feels as if he is just speaking these words from his mouth as if he is sitting in a comfy armchair while she is sitting at his feet by the fireplace or something. I mean, it has the this perception once upon a time and it just rolls on from there. But clearly it's an adult narrator who is articulate and well thought. Yeah, I also feel like it is C.S. Lewis himself. It has the authorial voice to it. And I don't think there's quite an omniscient narrator that I've ever come across like this one. Or at least like if it does, I feel like it's trying to mimic it. Because he does things in the first page even. He says, a very large house with a housekeeper called Mrs. McGrady and three servants. And then he'll do this thing with parentheses to clarify. And then he'll say, 
Their names were Ivy, Margaret, and Betty, but they do not come into the story much. And then he closes parentheses and he does that often. So it's like, you know, he explains Lucy, parentheses, who is the youngest, was a little afraid of him in Edmund, parentheses, who is the next youngest. So it's, it yeah. very much does feel like, wait a second, I forgot to tell you something. This is something that yeah. you want to know. But the pace keeps going. So yeah, keep up, right? <laughs> We're going yep. on with the story. Yeah. Question number four is about character. And the question is, which character should readers care about the most? Well, I think in this first chapter, it has to be Lucy because she's the one that we are going to follow. And she is the one that we're nervous about. Why mm -hmm. is she walking into a closet that has snow? <laughs> yes. And what's going to become of her? So I would say Lucy. And what do you like about the children? What makes you or Lucy in particular? Why do you why do you want to care about them? From the beginning, we care about them just because of these circumstances that they've been thrown into. They've had to be taken away from their home. There's attack on their country. So there's kind of these big picture reasons to just care about children in this type of situation. But then for these four kids themselves, we talk about how old the book is. And yet I feel like these could have been four children from today, the way that they are interacting with one another. You've got Peter being the oldest and the leader of all the children and Susan being kind of the bossy one that's trying to fill in mother's shoes because mother isn't there anymore. And now it's her chance to rise above her siblings. And Lucy's just kind of precocious, isn't she? But she's also pure at heart. The beginning of the chapter is like, I don't want to explore. I will get into trouble. I don't want to do all of that. And then Edmund, like you said, we need a little bit of wicked in here too in order <laughs> For it to remain interesting. And I think that rings true. I mean, every sibling group has a, a sibling who maybe was a little bit more naughty than the others. One, <laughs> <So. laughs> it's important that they are different, especially whenever you have groups of children or adults, whoever it is, who go on an adventure together. They best be having different personalities yes. because how are you supposed to provide conflict and interaction if we don't have differences? And I think that's one thing as a writer myself, I always have to figure out what is the place where it can stop becoming the same and become the character. I'm always waiting for that moment. It's like, okay, I think you spend enough time with the character and all of a sudden one day it will be the character now and the character is going to take over. So using inspirations from whatever it is in life to pull out specific things that we define as a character, but then go forward and let them live on the page. It's a cool experience when it happens. Okay. Question number five is about setting. And the question is, where and when does the story take place? So we're starting in the countryside of England. It's not really very specific other than to know that it's further away from London. But then we are quickly going to go to Narnia, which is through the wardrobe. Yep. And we know it's during the war. So yes. do you remember? I think it would be World War II. World War II. Okay. So yeah, the air raid. So World War II. Okay. Now, question number six deals with core emotion. And the question is, how should readers feel about what's happening? Well, the biggest feeling I take away from this opening chapter is curiosity. I feel like the children are curious. And by default, it makes the reader curious. Mm -hmm. And there's strange things happening. We're in a strange house with a strange man. And there's a strange wardrobe that leads to a strange land. There's just all these oddities that I think the reader can't help but but feel a little curious. And that curiosity is probably what keeps pulling them through to keep reading. Yes. And it's interesting because you have the omniscient POV, but we are curious as Lucy is curious. You know, we yes. keep going through the story because of that curiosity of the unknown. And then also I feel excitement to discover 
what's happening. And I am because Lucy is nervous about situations. Mm -hmm. You do get that sense of fear on what could happen when she moves into the wardrobe and she moves into this world. If you did not know that this was an action adventure story when you first picked it up, I don't think you'd be as nervous because she's so nonchalant about going and going into it. Like she has some hesitancies, but she brushes past them pretty quickly and doesn't actually know how severe the danger is. She doesn't know it's life or death danger when she enters Narnia. She is the catalyst for everything. I find that really interesting as a as a reread, because I think going in the wardrobe, I'm like, ooh, there could be danger here. But as a first read, I'm like, oh, yeah, there could be danger, but she's got it. The wardrobe yeah. door is still open, you know? <laughs> yep. And question number seven deals with stakes. And the question is, what are the stakes and why should readers care what happens next? Well, I think on the story as a whole, perhaps a lower stakes are we, we do wonder about the well-being of the children. Are they going to adapt well to their new surroundings? How are they going to deal with homesickness and things like that? Is the professor going to be a good person to live with? Is the house going to be a nice place to live? And then as soon as Lucy starts to explore this wardrobe, now we kind of have some life and death kind of stakes. You know, is Lucy going to make it what's around the corner of this wardrobe and mm-hmm. what will happen to her once she enters this new land? I agree with you. I think that's what maybe was holding me up because I was thinking so heavily about stakes when I was debating where I was going to call the scene because mm-hmm. chapter one it feels like lower stakes to me. It feels more yeah. psychological stakes, right? It deals more with that coming of age arc. Where are the children? How are they going to fit in? How do they work together? How are they going to deal with their new situation? But the greatest stakes actually come at the end of chapter two when Mr. Tumnus confesses that he was going to kidnap her and give her up to the White Witch. And then, of course, decides not to do that and risks his own life to do that. But those stakes completely changed the game. It's like, wait a second, we were having tea and now you're kidnapping me? What is happening? So it's just so interesting that there's a delay. But I do think if you were to actually clock out the word count, I did the word count for chapter one and it was 1,617 words. And then if I didn't actually clock out until page 13, which I should have, but I bet that would get us closer to the 2,000 range. And if you were going to the end of chapter two, and I'm guessing now I haven't done this math, It's probably getting 2,500, 3,000 range in that area, which is so interesting because if you were to be talking about something that'd be in today's market, I think that would be pretty common for us to reach around 2,500 first chapter maybe, or do you think they're still tighter? Yeah, I honestly, I think if this story was being written today, the, the opening chapter would probably be more fleshed out of the kids meeting the professor, maybe Mm -hmm. even we would see them saying goodbye to their parents. I don't know. And sort of that first chapter would be establishing this English countryside setting in the home. I don't think we would even be entering Narnia until chapter two, maybe even chapter three. Yeah. But having said that, just in general, a trend that you'll find in kids' books is that the inciting incident does tend to come early in comparison to the adult market. So even if it was written for today's market, it would still probably happen sooner than you might expect based on the, the word count. But yeah, kids are not going to hang around for very long, so <laughs> they need to be grabbed right away and taken on a journey right away. But I agree. It, it is all very tight. I agree with you that I think it'd be if it was written today, more fully fleshed out. I'm always pro book is better than the movie with the exception of some very few. 
But I think that uh, the movie is actually the adaption of this did a really great job and this one in particular. But I believe I haven't watched it in quite a bit now, but I think there is the goodbye to the parent scene and there's more engagement with the house. And that makes sense, right? Because I think that while there's not life and death stakes, because I think that the main stakes in this are life and death. So if it's not life or death stakes in Narnia, I would think it'd probably be chapter three would be when we go to Narnia, just looking at pacing. There are life and death stakes in the war. And we can see that Mm -hmm. there's more context in that they're being moved because it's dangerous to stay where they are. So that speaks to the life and death stakes that are in the real world versus the Narnia world. And I think that even though it's you know not the big picture stakes, we get the sense of danger that captures that emotion. And I think something too, since we're dealing with a children audience, it's easy to gloss over that maybe just having to be separated from one's parent isn't that big of a deal. But for mm-hmm. a child, being separated from a parent is the equivalent of life and death stakes. So I think it's so interesting that C.S. Lewis is taking this very precarious position of these children, and he's just kind of glossing over that and being like, oh, no, but now here's this real thing. And I think in doing that, he is not talking down to kids. He's not brushing past this bad thing that's happening, but he's also not dwelling on it. And by not dwelling on it, I think it gives the reader a sense of it will all be okay. Yes. And there's a great comfort in that. Yeah. And especially if it's the storytelling narrative, that's what you'd want. Like you want to pull us in with that. It's escapism at its greatest. In this time of great trepidation, you can have a place that you can feel safe and tell the story. So definitely. Let's go ahead and move into the scene analysis. And as we go through this, remember that where Sarah ended and where I ended was a little bit different. So we probably will have different answers. Let's talk about them and see why we have different answers and see if we can come up with the same conclusion of, did this first chapter work? And I guess I would ask that first. Do you think the first chapter worked? Do you think that it moved the story forward? Yeah. And did we develop characters? And I think that we can say yes to that pretty confidently because of how the seven questions played out. So going into this, before we do the scene analysis with the five commandments, the structure of the scene, I like to look at how there is value and purpose on the literal level, on the character level, and on the big picture level. To do that, we ask ourselves, what are the characters literally doing in this scene? And how does that change from beginning to end? So think about on the most external scale of the story, what literally happens in this scene? They start by wanting to just get a better sense of where they are, their Mm -hmm. new home. For me, the shift that I saw was in Lucy herself because she doesn't really want to participate in all that. I I don't think she would go exploring on her own if her Mm -hmm. siblings were not taking her along. Mm -hmm. And then this shift happens because everybody else leaves the room, but she wants to explore the wardrobe she's going to explore in her own way as her siblings continue through the house. And see, that's so interesting because I see that as the character growth because we do really lock into Lucy the most out of the four, even though it's still omniscient. And on the most literal level, the kids are exploring a house Mm -hmm. and that moves into Lucy is exploring an unknown land. Yep. It deals with exploring. And that is significant in the sense of what is the actual change here? I'd say we go from the professor's house to Narnia. And that's on the most literal level where we shift. It's a change in location in this case. And that is why we need to then look at question two, which deals with character and understanding what are the character's goal? What is their want in this scene? 
this is significant because the commandments help us understand why that goal is challenged and changes in a way. What do you think the children want in the scene and why do they want that? I think that they just want to know where they are and have a better sense for where they are. I think that's just common human nature. I'm in a new place. I'm going to try and become acclimated as best I can probably trying to settle in better to help the place feel more like home if it's going to be their home for mm -hmm. a while. That's why I kept locking in is, again, the, the word explore. What do the kids want to do here? They really want to explore the house. Mm -hmm. So when I go through my commandments, I'm asking myself what I think creates complications for that exploration and how that evolves into the scene itself. So that's what I had for the goal. And then for question number three, we're thinking now, how does this scene basically show big picture stakes, right? What, how, how does it impact the big picture of the story? And this is an important question because this means that we're taking the author's perspective. We know all the answers here. We understand how the scene plays a role in the grand scheme of things, just like the seven key questions do. What do you think about the scene? Why is the scene so significant? Well, without the... Scene with the wardrobe, there is no story, is, mm -hmm. is kind of the scene that everything rests on. If she doesn't discover Narnia, then this story is probably historical fiction now. <laughs> yes, yes. And you actually stated it in your notes, and I had this as well, that it's the inciting incident of the whole story because yeah. of that. So discovering the wardrobe, going to Narnia. And I also think that that does move and impact the big picture stakes of life and death, because if Lucy doesn't enter Narnia, then she's safe. Ultimately, the witch doesn't know her and isn't after her. So I think that you are moving into a place of danger when you go into Narnia. Of course, we have to grapple with danger in order to come into ourselves. We will now move into the five commandments. And these are tools that writers can use in order to identify if they have a well-structured scene. But the first of these is inciting incident. This is an unexpected disturbance that either creates the character's goals or forces the character to take a new approach and how they go about to achieve their goal. So what did you see as the inciting incident of the scene? For this scene, this chapter, I thought the children deciding to go explore was what kicked everything off. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I'm with you. And then I, this is actually the commitment I had the hardest time pinning down. And I think it's because I saw in a general way Wanting to explore is what kicks the story off. Exactly. I, I totally agree with you. And then I was trying to find the specific moment that I thought yes. that was. Because there is exposition in the scene of how they are, we no backstory. They're sent away from their parents to live with the professor for more safety. They talk about, you know, Peter specifically talks about how this is going to be a good place for them because they're going to get to do whatever they want. So they have that talk. And then I was looking for, okay, if I really want to look at how the commandments move in the scene, though, I want to stay in the present of the scene. So the present of the scene is when they're going to start to go exploring. I feel like when they start to talk, that is the beginning of the present of the scene. And then I decided the unexpected disturbance. What do I think actually forces them to start to explore the house? And I said it rains. So my inciting incident was it starts to rain. Uh, because that means that they had talked about wanting to go explore the forest. But since they can't go outside because it's raining, Peter says, well, I'm going to go exploring inside the house anyway. And the other three siblings follow suit. That sounds good to me as well. Yeah. Okay, awesome. 
The second commandment is the turning point. And I'll just explain these really quickly for listeners if you're unfamiliar with these, because the turning point crisis climax all work tightly together. The turning point is an action or revelation that forces a character into a crisis decision. So there will be complications between inciting incidents and turning points. And there's a variety of conflicts and characters can usually address these. But the turning point actually forces them to make a crisis decision, which is a best bad choice, which is, a, you know, two equally weighted bad things will happen out of your decision or an irreconcilable goods decision, which is the inverse of that, where the character might make a decision that might benefit them, but impact a, a third party. So the idea here of they are they have to make this decision. And even if they don't make a decision about it, there are consequences. So that's why it's a little different than other conflicts. The crisis, then how they answer that is what the climax is. The climax is the direct action of them making their decision. So they really work well together in there. And then you'll see that tightly, not always, but tightly compacted in a scene. So what did you think was the turning point of this scene? Well, I wondered if it was Lucy deciding to break out on her own. Even though she hasn't opened the wardrobe yet, I think her decision to stay behind in this strange house by herself where she's been spooked all this chapter and to let her siblings go on because she is curious about the wardrobe. That's what I saw as a turning point. Mm -hmm. And I had pretty close to where you were, but not exactly that. I was a little further in the sense that I thought that the moment that causes the crisis is when the wardrobe turns from clothes to branches snow and she sees a light ahead. And I actually marked it. The reason why I did this is because I felt like that moment had greater consequence of what she did versus staying behind from the siblings or, or following them. So that's the only, because I did, I thought about that, what you said, but I felt like this moment felt more of a crisis to me. So I had, let me see. Soon she went further in, this is page six. Soon she went further in and found that there was a second row of coats hanging up. The first one, it was almost quite dark in there. She kept her arms stretched out. So then she's going forward. And then at page seven, so it's overlapping, she says, a moment later, she found that she was standing in the middle of a wood at nighttime with snow under her feet and snowflakes falling through the air. Lucy felt a little frightened, but she felt very inquisitive and excited as well. She looked back over her shoulder and there between the dark tree trunks, she could still see the open doorway of the wardrobe and even catch a glimpse of the empty room from which she had set out. She had, of course, left the door open for she knew that it is, is, it is a very silly thing to shut oneself in a wardrobe. So there's another had, one of your parentheses. <laughs> yes, that, that's right. That's another one of the parentheses. And I think I settled on that exact moment because she stopped to think about, should I go back or not? She, and she felt frightened about it. So I decided I felt like there was a greater consequence. The crisis decision was more paramount to me if she was debating between, should I go forward and check out what this light is and risk getting stuck in this world? Or should I turn back and be forever curious? Where your crisis, what was your crisis? Well, yeah, so that's, that's interesting because I think this has to do with us looking at the longer version sure. versus, versus the shorter because, yes, my, my crisis is more of like, am I going to open this thing by myself and see what's inside? And I've had the, once she realizes that it's leading her to someplace very different, that's what I had as reaching as the climax, as am I going to keep going or am I going to go back? 
No, so sorry, I think it really just depends how much you condense the scene or or drag it out. But either way, I think that you're getting the same same Movement. arc. Yeah. yeah. Well, what's so funny, Sarah, that you mentioned that because I the reason why I thought about what you had is because I know the story. Right. And yeah. opening a wardrobe is just opening a wardrobe. I don't, she doesn't expect the world. So I think that's what's so funny. It's like there is emphasis and excitement based on the wardrobe because obviously you spend details of her being here alone and debating if she opens it or not. And she's kind of expecting it to be locked, but surprised when it's not. So it's just so interesting because I think if I had not read the story before, that wouldn't even be something that I thought about. But because I know what that wardrobe is going to lead to, it does have that greater sense of importance on whether or not she opens it or not. So it's that's really interesting because on the flip side, I was a child who hated to get into trouble. Uh, so I am seeing Lucy as like she does not, you know, she's always afraid if they go exploring that they're going to get in trouble with this professor. And so there's a part of me that wonders if she thinks that as soon as she turns that, you know, some adult's going to come running into the room. You're not allowed to open mm, that. That's a <laughs> good so, observation. I see it as being perhaps a little bit more high sitting <laughs> than maybe that's, the average reader. But see, that's why I love learning your why, because ultimately, I think both of our decisions are based on her hesitancy about something bad that could happen, whatever right. that is, but continuing to go forward because she's too right. curious. Yes. So the, cl the climax in my case was that she decides to walk towards the light. She just yeah. she, reason she reasons, I left that wardrobe door open. I'm going to be fine. I can always get back. And goes forward. So her direct action and my crisis was she moves forward into Narnia. And yours would be? Yes. Like she's she's going to step through. She's going to keep keep going. It's kind of like the point of no return, I guess. <laughs> oh, it's definitely. Once she knows this world, there's no going back from them, right? Then the resolution is all the action that falls after a climax. And it helps establish where a character is. Mentally and physically, I think it's really the combination of the two. Where are we now in the story? What did you see as the resolution? It was really hard and why I didn't know with splitting the scenes in two or going longer was actually this resolution issue because I feel like the resolution immediately turns into the inciting incident for the next thing. Yes. Because it's yes. like, I'm here in the land and oh, look, there's a fawn. Yes. <laughs> Okay, so I am, I'm right here with you. And this is why I spiraled so much because exactly that. We fall. No, I think literally. it's in the same paragraph. It is. We fall as readers and Lucy into the next scene. So I was trying to think about this in scene structure. And I think this is another good reason why I encourage writers to plot out their stories in scenes, not by chapter, because I think you can make the decision of when you're going to cut a chapter and maybe it's going to be on a cliff note of some sort and it falls into the next chapter. I do think that scenes follow through with these five commandments, but chapters can be cut in some parts. And when I was trying to decide where does the scene end, I think my greatest struggle is because the resolution for me is that I decided she falls into it. She sees the fawn. She meets Mr. Tumnus. When it went on a little bit longer for the discussion, he asked her about if she's human or not. She doesn't understand why he'd be asking her that. And then he invites her to tea and she debates about that. And now I ended and maybe it's just because I felt like it was a nice, tidy last line. But it said, and so Lucy found herself walking through the wood arm in arm with this strange creature as if they had known one another all their lives. And that's the very end of page 13. And that felt 
like a peaceful ending to me. So maybe that's why I landed there. But I debated because Mr. Tomness inviting her to tea acts as an inciting incident for the next scene. That's where I was like, but where do I call it? I think you can do this multiple ways. But if I were to look at the rest of chapter two and I would say what the inciting incident is for that second half, hmm, see, now I'd have to debate, would it be inviting him to tea? Probably. So then where do you end? Can you technically call that an immediate rest and that you would basically have the inciting incident happen before the scene? Or do we not have that? Is it just connected? Do we just yeah. keep going? Because I do think that the turning point for that next scene is when Mr. Tumnus confesses that he's going to kidnap her and those are the life or death stakes. That's just where I ended calling it. But exactly what you said, I think that they are fused together. Just deciding how the story moves forward and when it, it has its pieces, does the story move forward? Have the events that have happened in that movement force the character to make decisions that ultimately develops the character? Yeah. Well, and I think to your point, it's why the book has incredible narrative drive. Because it, just, it just keeps going. It, it, doesn't, oh, yes. it doesn't really let you take too long to take a breather. <laughs> no, I was going to say, no breaths are taken here. So. Uh, Is there anything else that you found important to talk about with this story before we wrap up our analysis? I want to say that we touched on everything. I'm sure afterwards I'll think of something. Yes. I just would encourage people to definitely use it as something to study. Obviously, the story is still there, even though there might be some stylistic things that are quite different Mm -hmm. for today's market, but it's still worth studying. Maybe even a fun test for middle grade fantasy writers out there to journal about how they would change it for today's market. That could actually be maybe a fun exercise. I think it would be an amazing exercise to try and rewrite the first chapter yeah, and write it, you know, make it your own. Because even something like a wardrobe, this today's, do people even know what a wardrobe is anymore? <laughs> Probably not. I think it would be really, really interesting to to try it you'll probably have like a jumanji adaption where we're going to fall into a a tv screen or something well and (laughs) do with this what you will but i i think that it's got to be not that much longer before it's in the public domain Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i wouldn't be surprised i mean i think we're still what maybe 15 15 20 years out but in our lifetime we will see the narnia adaptations oh for for sure sure. for sure And I will be excited because C.S. Lewis, this Chronicles of Narnia has a deep and dear place in my heart as it does to many others, I'm sure. And I'm so excited that you selected this one and absolute pleasure to analyze this first chapter with you today. If you ever want to come on again, I'd love to have you. It was great fun. Yeah, thank you. This was really fun. Maybe next time we'll have to tackle something newer so that Mm -hmm. we can contrast. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Lit Match. I love doing these first chapter deep dive analysis episodes, and I'm even more excited that I've been able to find great book coaches and editors and writers and other wonderful guests who want to do these analysis with me. I know I have so much more fun when I talk out analysis with another person, so it's great fun to do this together. I hope that these discussions are also encouraging you to take a look at your first chapters and your story and see how you're applying what you can learn from these episodes into your manuscript 
With that being said, I am so endlessly grateful for everyone who has rated and reviewed the show already. If you would like to support me, please don't hesitate. Just take one to two quick minutes, rate the show, write a review, and refer it to some of your writing friends. This is the best way that I can reach more writers like you who would like to learn how to grow their writing craft and find the dream agent that is going to be the best business partner for their writing career. Until next time, happy writing. I hope that you are finding joy and motivation with each page that you are polishing in your manuscript. And if you're in those query trenches, persevere. I know it can be tough, but the world needs your stories. The work that you are doing is meaningful. And I hope that I can continue to support you along that process. If you do sign with a literary agent, definitely let me know. I cannot wait to celebrate you and your progress in this publishing journey and celebrate your book when it comes out.